Hello and welcome to Time for a Cherry Pie and Coffee with me, Bex. And me, Eason. And welcome to our episode all about part 15 of Twin Peaks of Return. Yes, thank you for sticking with us through the last 15 hours of episodes <laughs> and probably about 50 hours of actual podcasting <laughs> we've done. Um, yeah, uh, it's been an interesting week because we had a fantastic episode, obviously. But just beforehand, we thought we'd talk a little bit about our crazy timeline that we put out on Saturday, which has had a wonderful response. Thank you for all your comments. Yeah, so we put this timeline up. It only goes up to part 14. Um, and already there are some things that are going to need shifting around from part 15 from some new information. Um, but we had a great time chatting to everyone on Twitter about it. Um, lots of comments coming in about all the different threads in the timeline. But thank you so much to everyone who tweeted us, who read it, who shared it. Um, we are going to publish it again once we've updated it for all of this new info. Yeah, it's not um, at all meant to be definitive. Um, and we've already found there are many things which not only were slightly wrong with the first one, but actually I don't think we're actually going to get everything to fit into one consistent timeline. It was more something that we were building up each week and trying to work out for ourselves how to put things together. And the people had asked if they could see it. So we put it out there. And um, yeah, it's been really fun just to kind of see what people think and see where people think the different timelines might be syncing up or not as the case may be um but yeah it's yeah it's been a fun little experiment and we actually spent a bit of time working on it already with a few shifts trying to put a few things in um it is getting more and more complicated though with each week to try and work out how it all fits together certainly following diane's blouses (laughs) and bangles and skirts and trousers oh dear yeah just when you think you figured it out it, you realise that you really haven't. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I'm getting there with Diane's clothing changes, but I think the the timeline in Twin Peaks itself is getting a bit more confusing now. Yes, yeah, so we'll actually come back to that, I think, later in the week. So check our Twitter feed and we'll try and update that probably at the weekend, mm-hmm. I think. Um, yeah, but in the meantime, there is some fear in letting go. Episode 15. Mm. Yeah, what were your overall thoughts so it it was a very emotional episode i thought um obviously it gave fans something one thing that they've been wanting to happen for a really really long time because yeah, everyone's been waiting to find out how itchy stephen's leg is <laughs> ever since i saw him i thought i want to see that man scratch his leg <laughs> and now i feel that the return has done what it really needed to do for me mm. you know i feel like I could, I could stop watching now and think yeah i've seen what i need I mean, finally seeing Ed and Norma get together. Swiftly moving on. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully for good this time. I mean, obviously we've kind of been here before a little bit last time around and and it didn't work. But hopefully for good this time. In the same episode that obviously you get um, the death of the log lady and Philip Jeffries turning into a giant cattle. Yeah. Things like that happen only in the world of Twin Peaks. <laughs> yeah, I think I think overall it's been it's interesting because I think we've had this discussion a little bit in previous episodes of the podcast about how obviously although it's structured as an eighteen-hour movie, they have put material together to make something that is pseudo episodic almost. So there are often themes that seem to run through each hour more strongly than um, being part of a larger whole. And certainly, I would say that in 
part 14, the theme was really about memories and being able to remember things or not being able to remember things and, and how even that fits into the idea of the, the passage of time in the world of Twin Peaks and that was becoming important. I think in this hour, and I think it's something that Seth brought up in A Slice of Pie, it was really about the idea of the theme of mortality um, in Twin Peaks. And in this case, we see many different um, viewpoints of that happening and all of them played very different ways as mm. well and I think it will, I think we'll come on to it later but in light of um, what the log lady says during her speech I think it's very telling that her words relate not only to the fate of her own character but potentially how they might relate to um, the return as a show is kind of important because you know are we um looking at these events as an ending to the saga or is it actually as return seems to be more of a transformation of the show it's not it's not just a straightforward sequel to what happened 25 years ago it is a chance to take things in a different direction and you know do a very different thing in the Twin Peaks universe, which I think is quite unique and a very brave thing to do, and ultimately so far a wholly successful one. Yeah, so shall we talk about part 15? No. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not. No, yes. Let's do that. There's some fear in letting go. So we begin with Nadine walking down the road with her golden shovel and she's very determined. It was like something out of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. <laughs> Hey-ho, hi-ho, it's off to as we go. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a strange it was a strange scene. I mean what you know, she just kind of she's really on a mission now. And I think what's been nice about her arc during the return so far has been the change in the way they've portrayed her as being somebody who was very dependent on Ed to somebody who's really developed her own agency and desire to do things. And although Ed does joke about it in a few moments, um, I think having these, uh, sorry, having the chance to watch Dr. Amp's show has maybe in some way uh, taught her to be more assertive in some way or to follow her dreams and certainly the fact that her drape runner shop is running is it's you know it's nice because it shows that she's managed to achieve something on her own and maybe that level of end of independence has made her realize that she doesn't need to be as overly dependent on ed in some way yeah so she's basically going to big ed's gas farm in order to release him i yeah. suppose from his his kind of lifelong attachment to her um, now, when you see the wide shot of the gas farm when she's walking up to it, and you know you see the the top where it says Big Ed's and it's got the thing with all the smoke coming out. Yeah. When we watched the episode for the third time, that reminded me of later on with Philip Jeffries and the smoke coming out of the kettle ah, thing. Yeah, yeah. I think certainly in light of what happened with that scene where Ed was eating soup. And then not eating soup, but then watching himself in his reflection eating soup. Yeah. Um, 
it is strange. I think a lot of weird things are seem to be going on, but this is strange because I think it's showing that there are important arcs taking place involving the characters that are away from the main plot involving you know Bob, the woodsman, the black and white lodgers, etc. Twin Peaks still has these human stories at its heart that do obviously move a little bit into melodrama, especially in the way that some of this dialogue takes place. It's very heavy exposition-wise, but um, I felt it was kind of nice that they just delivered this whole scene and got that working, because I think a few hours ago I was thinking, how are they going to start wrapping some of these plots up, especially ones which were being introduced quite late in the season Mm. and maybe don't have the same gravitas to them it does appear that they are raising these things and they are going to start picking them off and they are important character arcs that i think reflect what's happened with these really important residents in twin peaks although they may not impinge upon the main storyline inverted commas um i think it's nice to see them yeah i mean it the whole thing made me feel a little bit cautious because we were in a similar place back in season two when Nadine had her kind of high school mind and was in love with Mike, but she wasn't really entirely in her own mind no. at the time. And there was a whole weird subplot with her and Mike and then her wanting to break up with Ed, but not necessarily really understanding what it all meant. Mm. And it looked like Ed and Norma were going to get together and then that he gets it over the head again and it, and it, it all goes wrong. Um, but, but what's nice is that this time, you know, she's the one making the decision and she's very clear in her own mind that this mm. is exactly what she wants. It's, it's almost the opposite of the way that it happened last time when her judgment was obviously so clouded by um, the sort of what she was going through at the time. Um, but at, at the same time, I... You know, you you do kind of approach it with a slight element of caution because you thought, ah, we've we 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 thought we were here before and we weren't. And... Yeah, there are three hours to go, and I think even Ed suggesting that he's worried that Nadine may, you know, wake up the next day and forget about this. I think everyone has that caution. It's odd that you know more things could happen um, in the remaining three hours, but also maybe they're just shutting off this uh, this plotline yeah. as well. Although I, I do think that it's interesting that Nadine is now basically wandering around town with a golden shovel and yeah. super strength. <laughs> I yeah. think that's got to come to something later on. I think even, I mean, just going back to the bit where she's walking at the beginning, it for some reason it reminded me of that bit in Shaun of the Dead when, <laughs> <laughs> when Simon Begg is like walking down the road with a shovel just hitting zombies as they go out of the way. Because, you know, Sarah Palmer says men are coming and I and I see... Nadine battling through an army of woodsmen to get to Dr. Amp in some way. <laughs> I don't know how it's going to work, but the fact she's kind of armed herself is kind of good. But also I think it's an, it's strange that that as a symbol, which as a viewer, it's been kind of a hokey thing when it was first revealed that he was making these shovels and, and doing this crazy pirate broadcast. It's interesting that that's given her the the strength. There's something that she needs to hold on to and keep with her. Hmm. Um, it is like a talisman to her in some way and something that gives her strength. And I think you can't flaw, in this instance, what Jacoby is really 
done in terms of his influence upon her because it has been positive. It may mm. be something you agree with, but it's interesting that it's given her that strength. Yeah, because she's she's so proud of it. She hangs it in the window of her shop. Mm. She carries it down the road on her shoulder, just kind of just you know displaying the shovel to the world. She even you know shows it to Ed and is is like, yes, this is what I'm doing. It's emblematic of her emotionally digging herself out of the hole that she was in. And her relationship with Ed was part of that problem. Because yeah. deep down, she always knew that that it, it wasn't a good relationship. It wasn't a healthy relationship. And if, if that's now her basically taking control of her own life and saying, this is not a good relationship for us to be in, so I'm the one who's going to end it, that's a positive thing, I think. And it's also going to be very useful when it comes to taking out Woodsman. Yeah. <laughs> so unlike many other things in The Return, we actually have two consecutive scenes that actually then link up <laughs> yes <laughs> and they have to go in this order as well <laughs> Be weird otherwise wouldn't it yeah yeah so ed rushes over to the double r as if willed on by the entire audience to go yeah straight he, he has this look in his eyes when he's watching i presume nadine leaving where all of a sudden he realizes that this is the opportunity and he has to take it yeah, and he he walks into the diner and he gives this really goofy wave to the normal, like hello, <laughs> which maybe replaces the new uh, the new coffee time thing. <laughs> so last week you had to basically walk into a coffee shop, hmm. say coffee time, and give the thumbs up like Gordon Cole. But now when you go into a, a Starbucks, you have to go in, stand at the door, and wave. <laughs> yeah, so he he goes over to Norma and starts trying to explain that Nadine has set him free uh, and she's immediately like oh sorry Walter's here and in that moment I mean I don't know about you but I was just thinking no Ed it's not gonna work it's not gonna it has to work it has to work out it's crushing it's crushing in that one moment it's it's strange because I think given some of the negative ways in which some of the plot lines have gone for certain characters it was actually quite fitting that he would turn up. It almost seemed like it was all going too well for those few moments and it was yeah. crushing to see it and you thought, they've actually done that. They've actually released Ed <laughs> and he's finally had the chance to go to Norma and have the opportunity to tell her he loves her but also that they can now be together because obviously Hank's out of the picture and then we have the uh, the appearance of Walter that just deflates everything. And, the, you know, especially because the music is playing as well. Otis Redding, um, uh, what's the song? Uh, I've Been Loving You Too Long. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's almost the equivalent of um, Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warnes doing the <laughs> Up Where We Belong thing from Officer and a Gentleman. It's that level of, you know, emotional intensity which is building. But... You know, you really want it to go well. And then again, he's only appeared twice. But Walter, I'm sure he's a very nice person. <laughs> but he's just, he's not wanted in this situation <laughs> no. at all. No. So Norma's obviously called him to come by to tell him that she wants out of the franchises. Mm. But he's been sending her flowers. And it, I, I'm not entirely sure if they were having a relationship or if he was trying to start a relationship yeah. Or what it was, um, but it was all—it was all very dubious. Um, and you know, when he f- realizes that she wants out of the franchises, he obviously also decides that actually 
not interested in a relationship anymore yeah. because he's just incredibly rude about the whole thing. So you do wonder if really he was just interested in the franchises itself. Yeah, there's a shallowness to him, which I which I really don't like. He almost seems like Hank, but without the criminal streak. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because all these other characters in Twin Peaks who we're returning to 25 years later, uh, the fact that, for example, Bobby and Shelley have split up and uh, Sylvia and Ben have split up and it's 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 not working out for the people we know and love and to see Ed and Norma be separated at this point it's fitting with those themes that have been taking place but it is so so disappointing but I think there's a weird feeling here which is one aspect of the return has been the fact that it is worth the wait just like the relationship that's been sort of bubbling away for that long because now we know it probably has been off the cards for 25 years yeah it's incredible that you can kind of not put it to one side but suppress it for that long and then there's still a chance which i think gives like there's there's something that's tremendously hopeful about it for not only the characters but twin peaks itself i think you know the town has always been reflective of the um behavior and the events surrounding the characters in it yeah and of course even in the original series they were what in their mid-30s yeah so so they had already ed and norma had already been apart for over 15 years yeah. add on another 25 yeah it's crazy it's been a long time a long time we finally get what the audience has uh has been wanting this whole time yeah it's it's strange because you know ed orders his coffee and the osprey cyanide tablet yeah i mean i think you just know how it's going to go but then when norma dismisses walter and you just see him very like he's kind of very quiet contemplative his eyes closed like he's praying or meditating or something and i'm not sure if he's trying to calm himself because he knows it's over Mm. or he is just willing something to happen that will turn these events around but it's just so wonderful that something does happen Mm. and when you see that i mean a lot of the things involving the double r in particular have been really well framed when they've been shot especially the scenes between ed and norman about how brief they've been and i think in this case to see him sitting there and then see norma's hand appearing that's the moment when it's there's a there's a like a feeling of tremendous release there because you know that everything is okay and i think there's an element of needing to know that things will be okay in the end yeah it's actually really nice that it worked out in a way where you actually feel happy for all three of them you don't just feel happy for ed and norma you also feel happy for nadine that she's taking control of her own life and her own destiny and it, it would have been a very difficult thing to to present it as a happy ending with ed and norma together if nadine was distraught about the whole thing yeah so actually, it's all it's all worked out quite well. Yeah, and I think as an arc, it's it's short in terms of these eighteen hours, but actually, it provides a wonderful little vignette, which is a beacon of hope within the whole eighteen hours. And I think no matter what happens in the next three hours, we'll always have this moment, which I think is very important. But I felt very bad for Shelley. Hmm. Yeah, because she's obviously in some kind of unhealthy relationship with Red, because we know that Red is a bad guy, even if she doesn't. It hasn't worked out with Bobby. 
And, I mean, goodness only knows what's happened to Becky. Yeah. Given events that occur later in the episode, although whether they occur before or after this, I'm not really sure. Mm. I think it's it's interesting that in all the scenes with Shelley, you've had always a reaction shot of Norma looking at what's going on and looking a bit worried for what's happening with Shelley. But it's mm. interesting that Norma has, in the background had this work out for her and now it's Shelley looking on but I think she looks kind of lost at this moment and I'm sure she's happy for Norma and Ed but it it's it, it is something that undercuts the positivity because you realize how she must be feeling about how her situation is turning out like you say. What do you make of Norma's comment when she said that she had family and Walter says, I thought you said you didn't have any family. And Norma says, oh, I do. I have a wonderful family and I want to take care of them. Yeah, I. so I would like to think, for the ease of my brain, <laughs> that she's talking about, you know, the people who work with her at the Double R mm. and the local community, that kind of side of things. In reality, it's a very, very jarring statement because... You know, obviously she has a sister. We think she still has a sister (laughs) called Annie Blackburn. Mm. And the only reference to her was very... Well, it was a passing reference by Hawke when he saw the diary pages earlier on in the season. And in the secret history, she's not mentioned. Um, In the same way, in secret history, her mother is dead, I think, at this point. There's no mention of Annie... And Mark Frost has said, well, you know, all will be revealed in the future. So it's clear they do know what's going on with that. But it's strange that for the first time, um, there's a reference to family. And it's quite a specific one as well. It does seem that she is talking about an actual relative. But we have no mention of Annie. And it does make me wonder if there is something going on. Maybe Annie is being kept away from things in some way or, you know, I don't know, maybe she returned to the convent. I don't know. Something has happened. Mm. And I think Annie or the concept of Annie in some way will rear its head. Uh, Not only in this context, but because, look, there was this big mystery at the end of season two, (laughs) which it's very odd not to address in some way. I think this might have been the first trickle of information that maybe they are going to talk about this. What did you think? Yeah, certainly to have Walter say specifically, I thought you said you didn't have any family. And for her to say, no, I I do, I have a wonderful family. It felt like they were highlighting the discrepancy that has previously existed from the original series in the book and the confusion that that has caused. I felt like it had to be deliberate. Yeah. Um, You know, just this little deliberate, drop of information in a scene which was really about something else Um, so it was kind of easy to overlook the first time you watch it because you're just willing Norma to get rid of him so she can be with Ed Um, but I think it has to be relevant Yeah, I just I I really don't know there's with three hours to go I really don't know if that's something that is actually going to come into the show or if it's something that's going to be left to the final dossier to explain yeah it's I think like you say it's it's weird that you would add that dialogue in if you weren't going to expect the audience to have some reaction to it. Uh, that's certainly what we had. So then, you know, a brief shot of blue skies and clouds and everything happy is broken by 
the electricity cables. Um, I th- like, are these the ones from Andy's vision that's presented to him by the firemen in part 14? Yeah, they felt very reminiscent of them. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's the exact same shot, but they certainly felt the same. Yeah, it's like black and white nighttime. And it's interesting because then it cuts to another Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive style shot of Mr. C driving around. We never see him driving in the day. <laughs> In the daytime, he's always been beaten up and he's walking down the road covered in blood. But at night, that's when he likes to go out driving. And it's almost like he's actually following these cables as well, the way way they've shot it. And it's like, okay, Mr. C's on the road. You know, that itself would be an interesting Um, (laughs) spin-off. But then all of a sudden we see him pull up at a place which we've only seen in uh, part eight during the presentation of the, you know, the origin of... uh, the convenience store so he pulls up right outside it seems to be a physical location and just as his car is pulling in in front of him what is what looks like a woodsman but not one of the you know charcoal black soot covered dirty bearded men one he's, he's a relatively clean bearded woodsman yeah clean bearded men outside a gas station <laughs> <laughs> as Gordon Cole didn't say <laughs> yeah so we have the actual convenience store um, which is presumably the Dutchman's as Ray called it yeah. because he's gone there looking for Jeffries and he walks up the kind of fire escape looking stairs up the side and flickers and disappears which must be the literally above the convenience store yeah. but it's a portal to another place yeah and the way that he kind of flickers in and out of existence is very reminiscent of what happened to gordon cole when he was in front of the vortex in buckhorn and it's actually quite similar to uh coop when he Mm. was flickering in and out of existence when he was talking to the fireman at the end of the prologue in part one as well um so this so he was driving before so this this means that this is Mr. C driving from Western Montana, probably in the direction of uh, Twin Peaks now. Yeah, it must be, because I think that this must still be the same day. Yeah. I think he's gone straight from the farm yeah. to here, because obviously, as we find out in a bit, Richard Horn has followed him, yeah. um, which makes Richard Horn much better at tailing him than anybody else has succeeded <laughs> in, in doing so far. And... The way that these portals work, it seems to go through different phases, almost like it's going through portals that lead to other portals, because as I've gone to the top of the stairs, you get shots of what look like Ghostwood Forest, um, which kind of merge with walking through the corridor, and then that goes into the stairs, same stairs that Gordon Cole saw. And I think is it also a bit with the, the wallpaper that looks like the room in the painting from Fire Walk With Me. Yeah, the one that the Chalfonts slash Tremonts gave to Laura and the one that in her vision she's able to enter and kind of go into the Black Lodge in some way. Yeah, and then from there, through a door, he ends up at the motel, which looks like the motel where Leland Bob killed Trees Banks. Yeah, so, I mean, what's weird about this, I think, like you say, is that so when we first saw the convenience store, it was in New Mexico. Yeah. 
And I suppose what's interesting is that, and I, I can't remember this now in part eight, but when they showed the girl and the boy, we presumed that was New Mexico, didn't we? Yeah. But was it actually labelled as New Mexico? Um, or was it the first time it was there it was labelled as New Mexico? I think it's, it's New Mexico where the uh, frog bug thing was hatching and where the woodsmen were. So if we kind of assumed it was the same because she was getting the radio yeah. signal and, um, and the frog bug came into the room. So I think it was... But we also know that the convenience store has been in Seattle. Yeah, from via Walk With Me. Yeah. So I think there's something funny about the fact that it is kind of TARDIS-like. It's able to teleport around and and as you enter it by going above it, you can actually go to different places, which is very strange as well. And certainly it implies that, I mean, given that, like you say, you go to an area which looks like Ghostwood Forest maybe there's a very direct way for some of the characters to potentially end up in Twin Peaks or to come out of Twin Peaks and enter the place above the convenience store as well. Yeah. I've got to say it would be a very different season of Doctor Who if, <laughs> if the convenience store were the TARDIS. Well, they did kind of turn um, that diner into a TARDIS at the end of the season where Cara goes. That's true. Um yeah. But I, I never really understood what the heck was going on in that season anyway. Yeah. Although, although going back to the fact that you... So you, so you mentioned that it's the motel that is the one that Leland was planning to meet Teresa. But then when he saw that Laura was there as well, in addition to Ronette and Teresa, he freaked out and he left. Mm. Now, it's that motel. Now... Why, why... Well, do you think it's just that they were shooting in that location and it was a callback... You know, geographically, they wanted to just use that location again. He liked the look of that motel, or is there some relevance to it being the same motel featured in Firewalk with Me? Well, it seems it seems to be that place, but kind of out of joint, in the same way that it seems to be Ghostwood Forest, but kind of out of joint. So I I, I don't know if they've actually gone to the the motel or if i i don't know if kind of lodge activity creates some other version of a place that can then be accessed in a in a kind of different plane because it can't be the actual motel or there would be a giant kettle in one of the rooms (laughs) which Uh, would be unusual but but at the same time so this is the motel where it was it was clear that Teresa had the alcave ring yeah when she was here and it's odd because we've only seen it in the context of Teresa, Ronette, Laura and Leland. Now, all I'm wondering about is, given that Bob was inhabiting Leland, mm. is it being presented as a vision to Mr. C because potentially Bob is still inside Mr. C and it's something that Bob recalls in some way? Is, it, is that the link rather than it being um, too tangential? Yeah, so in If I Walk With Me, did Cooper go to the motel? No. no, he only went to the trailer park. Yeah. Looking for Chet Desmond. Yeah. So it wouldn't be something that Cooper himself recognised. Yeah. Um, unless he read up on the case, but it would be a place that Bob would recognise. Yeah. Um, so whether it's it's manifesting in a way that 
each spirit would understand where they were or I don't know because it, it's 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 all seems to be some other kind of dimension yeah almost like um a place within the real world but that has been shifted ever so slightly out of sync with reality yeah like a, a kind of shadow self of a place yeah a doppelganger motel yeah that's true and, and so, like one thing that i suppose is a, a real leap here is that so in in fire walk with me it's the red diamond city motel mm-hmm. but in the script it was the blue diamond city motel oh. and what i think is kind of funky about that is that actually then it means that the two different versions of it are the, are the red and the blue yeah and this would kind of I mean, I'm sure it's not intentional, but it's interesting that that relates to, you know, Jacoby's glasses and and what those two things actually mean—the red and the blue—in the world of Twin Peaks. So I wonder yeah. if there was there was always some feeling that the way you projected um, events with color that even ties into the actual naming and the script naming of uh, of this motel. But it is the same place, um, so it's interesting that they go here, but. It could just be one of the many Fire Walk With Me references that, that is appearing in this episode. You know, in the original script for the end of season two, yeah, there was supposed to be something that the the Black Lodge was meant to be something like the Great Northern. Yes, yeah, but that was like another version of the Great Northern, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like a. So is this in a similar vein? It's it's another version of the motel, but it could be. I think it's. I think there is something to that. I'm not sure exactly how it works, but I think, like you say, the idea that there's a a shadow version of even locations. I mean, I mean, to be honest, we also have the fact that the number six telegraph pole can move around as well. Mm. Locations can move. Um, and I think if you tie in the fact that the convenience store has apparently been in New Mexico, in Seattle, and now it's somewhere outside of western montana it's interesting that it kind of goes to where it needs to be but it's still interesting that coop is able or mr c is able to find it if it's constantly moving um it's almost like that um what was his name uh in buffy rack rack Rack, who has that who has that shifting magic shop or thing where he trains people in 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 the dark arts which is constantly in different locations but you can find it if you know what you're looking for yeah you can sense it if you are magic or demonic in some way isn't it yeah and it's interesting because when we go back to um i don't jump too far ahead but in that initial conversation between mr c and the person who we think may or may not have been philip jeffries he did say you still know where yeah. And this does appear to be nowhere. It doesn't have a fixed location, but it does exist. Yeah, because if if it exists temporarily in a place, it could be that people who weren't in tune with it simply wouldn't see it, or they would see it and see an abandoned, decaying convenience store with nothing there and keep driving. But it does have cans in the window. It does have cans in the window. cans of Garmin yeah. Bosier are there. Um and also, it must be a real place in this instance because later on we see Richard Horn show up. Yeah. Um, unless he doesn't see something behind him, which we, you know, it's, it's unclear, but uh, he does appear to pull up at the place where there is a building in front of him. Yeah, so as Mr. C goes up the fire escape and into the first of these kind of 
different kind of dimensional gateways, I suppose. He's in the room with the wallpaper from the painting. Do you reckon they still had that wallpaper knocking around somewhere? How on earth did they get it? And there's a woodsman sitting there and he says, I want to see Philip Jeffries. And the woodsman pulls on some kind of lever. Yeah. Um, and it all gets very sparky. And I just love the way that when the lights get a bit strobey, it just highlights Mr. C's completely black eyes. Yeah. Um, it's so creepy. But do you think the woodsman is basically uh, connecting whatever the next bit of the portal is to the place where he wants to go? Because he says, I want to see Philip Jeffries. Yeah, so... What's interesting, firstly, is that this is a dirty bearded man in the room. Yeah. Not a clean bearded man outside a gas station. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's like, you know, when Nido was flipping switches in part three? Yeah. And able to switch where things are going and, and how that room technically rearranged when Coop went back into the spaceship, you know? Yeah. Um, it's interesting like that because it almost seems like these switches are a... If you imagine this is like a... Um, an electrical circuit these switches are literally diverting the way the current is going mm. and I can see how maybe asking for a certain person connects you a certain way and what's interesting about this this woodsman is that one he's bleeding from the mouth or mm. or, 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 or seemingly you know something is coming out of him which I don't know if it directly ties to what Audrey was saying about Billy bleeding from the nose and mouth I mean it's not Billy but there's something about seeing that uh, that imagery again but the two things it reminded me of really were um firstly in fire walk with me in the scene when jeffries recalls being in the convenience store meeting room or the yeah um you see one of the woodsmen who kind of you know uh, it's the jürgen Prochnow one mm. who kind of is also involved in flipping some giant switch and triggering all this electrical uh, discharge as well the other thing it reminds me of is the scene much earlier on in the Chet Desmond part of the story. Yeah. When they, when Desmond and Stanley go to Hap's diner and they're about to go in and there's that old guy at the door who's talking to them. But there's a person sitting down next to a TV, I think. Um just outside who is sitting there just like this guy just leaning against me and, and he doesn't do much in that but it's interesting that they've used that same positioning mm. again because obviously although there's nothing particularly sinister or lodgy about Haps Diner in Fire Walk With Me it is the start of some weird goings on for example that conversation they have with the man and the French woman who are at the counter as well when they're trying to ask questions about Theresa Banks. It's, just, it, it's interesting as a visual recall to have that same thing again. Um, but yeah, it's it's just wonderful how they have this because this is, you know, it's just so creepy watching watching these woodsmen now, seeing how prevalent they are. Mm. Um, and also notice how in this world as well, they are, um, they're not ethereal anymore. They're solid. Yeah, yeah. You know, so clearly this is the realm in which they exist. So they are... Uh, physical presences rather than these ghostly things that are able to disappear reappear so then another woodsman appears who then guides mr c down this dark corridor and it it looks like a corridor that i think you see cooper in in one of the trailers yeah there is that shot of cooper with somebody 
who's well so it's dark and cooper's in shadow but you see somebody who's even more in shadow maybe walking alongside him and he seemed a bit short as well and i wonder if it's well it's it's foretelling at least in the trailer a scene where cooper is going to end up going to the convenience store because it's very odd how this shot is shot straight from behind but that one looks like he's going around the corner mm. and i think it's in the same place but we'll have to wait and see yet another callback to fire walk with me actually before i forget is that brief flash of uh carlton lee russell as the jumping man mm. so we knew that he was back in the cast list you know it was it was suspected that he'd be back as the jumping man who's the guy in the red suit who wears that funny mask with kind of the pointy nose on it um and we see him very briefly as the electricity is sparking off doing his crazy jumping man jive <laughs> I think someone said on Twitter that you also see some kind of flash of Sarah Palmer's face or something. Yeah, I saw that. I and I, yeah, I can't remember who posted it, but um, immediately afterwards, it was kind of all over um, our timeline, and people were talking about this. And it, it's a really—I mean, I, like I don't know how it was spotted. It's a—it's a really clever catch, but it does look like you see her face superimposed um, on the face of the jumping man, which is very, very odd. Um, but he's just such a creepy character. And I hope we see him again. Like, especially because he seems to link, in terms of his mask, with um, the grandson mm. of the uh, Tremond Chalfont dynasty. So uh, I think it's interesting because then, obviously, there's a link later on to uh, the grandson wearing the mask, taking the mask off. Underneath is a monkey. The monkey says Judy, but we'll come to that. And I suppose one very tangential connection might be the fact that given that we might be seeing Sarah Palmer's face on or sort of merged with that of the jumping man that might actually lend more credence to the idea that when Sarah Palmer took her face off and you could see that uh, that smile inside maybe it was actually the jumping man's smile that you were seeing inside her head looking mm. outwards yeah so then a woodsman leads him up some stairs and it's the stairs that Gordon Cole saw the woodman standing in when he looked into the vortex in the zone. Yeah. And it's the same woodsman, I think, who killed Bill Hastings. Yeah, the slightly uh, rotund yeah. uh, woodsman who does that kind of funny, creepy walk up to the car. Yeah. Um, which is very odd. I mean, I think it's, it's strange because the way I'm thinking about this now, are these portals like the one in Buckhorn? perpetually open then because they just went back to the zone in the episode and it was there and it was open and cole could see into it so it must still be there now it wasn't like it was something that needed to be opened at a specific time like we may be happening with um the black lodge or the white lodge etc it just seemed to be something that they went to yeah and it was open which means it's permanently there and in this case it's odd because when cooper goes up the stairs he reaches the door and he looks through it and it's now in a different place mm. you know it's not like it's still in the convenience store it hasn't gone to the same room where we saw all the lodge spirits in fire walk with me mm. so it clearly goes somewhere else so it, it's interesting that when cole saw things he saw the woodsman lined up outside almost like they're guarding that because maybe it does go to lots of different locations and in this case we mentioned it already but it's opening out into the motel that we've seen earlier in fire walk with me one of the rooms he's been through, the one with the wallpaper, which is from the painting, um, 
from Fly Walk With Me, is that painting still in the house? Because would that mean that there's a portal in the house where Sarah still is? Yeah, which is probably what's antagonising her in some way or allowing something to inhabit her. I mean, if you imagine that that portal exists in the house and these portals are active like the one in Buckhorn, that means that for 25 years she's been living next door to a portal to the Black Lodge. And for all we know, one day she wandered upstairs to look in her late daughter's bedroom and maybe she went into that picture. And maybe that's what's connected her to the Black Lodge in some way or at least one of these lodgy environments mm. it does make you wonder I mean because there's always been a question about what it is that's maybe triggered her inhabitation I think uh, during the return certainly there wasn't any evidence of that during um, the original series but it was clear that she had some kind of psychic powers or was able to see things so maybe you can imagine that that uh, innate skill coupled with a portal in her own house that she's left with for 25 years might have resulted in the state we're seeing her in now. Yeah, and and thinking about the idea of doppelgangers of locations as well as people, if this is like a a shadow self of the motel, the way that um, the Palmer house looks now with the dead garden and everything like that, it almost looks like it's becoming a shadow self of the house. Yeah. What was interesting, yeah, what was interesting about that, because we watched some of the scenes again the other day, was the fact that... So, so we pointed out before that the house is run down compared to the house next to it. So it's exter- well, it's exterior appearances. Mm. So the grass is all dead and the plants look dying. But it's all still being cut. Yeah. So it's not like everything's been left to overgrow and has become, you know, over time, everything's wilted or died or not been watered. It's odd because the, somebody is still cutting the grass at the Palmer house. Mm. But everything around it is... is at, well, So the actual earth is dead, basically. Mm. The ground is dying. And I think that's very symbolic of what's happening. It doesn't imply that she's neglected the property. It's the fact that it's there's a darkness in that land which is very clearly demarcated by the limits of, the, of that property. Mm. And then... So Mr. C walks across the kind of forecourt of this motel up to room number eight another kind of lodge inhabitant i suppose walks over is just super creepy figure Mm. comes over and says i'll unlock the door for you yeah and she says it backwards yes whereas mr c is talking forwards yeah and the only person we have ever seen talk forwards in any of the lodges at all or move forwards or, or anything is Cooper. Yeah. Because all those scenes in the Red Room, everyone, including Laura, Leland, uh, Maddie, everyone, spoke backwards. Yeah. And Bob spoke backwards when he was there. Yeah. And this is a doppelganger with Bob in him and yet he's talking forwards when the people around him are talking backwards. Yeah. Which is strange. It is strange. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing to add on that. No, it's, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I think that's a very good point. I think it's, it means something, um, probably to do with the fact that obviously Mr. C is still Cooper. Mm. Um, but it is odd that, 
as we see in the next scene, it's not just him who is speaking forwards in this world. It's also the new iteration of uh, Philip Jeffries. And the one thing is, that, like, so I'm interested actually in the fact that they go to number eight mm. because Teresa's motel room was number six. So it's not the same one as all that stuff happened Yeah. Um, in Fire Walk With Me. What's also interesting, I thought, is that eight is a, if you turn it on its side, it's a, what are they called? Mobius symbol. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I kind of think it's interesting they put Philip Jeffries, as he's about to appear, in a room which is marked by a, a, a symbol that could be deemed to represent the infinity. Kind mm. of being in that kind of perpetual state of just going round and round and round. Yeah. Um, and you're always being in the same location as well. Yeah. So Mr. C gets let into room number eight, and it's this really dingy kind of dank interior and does it look like the interior is actually a screen that pulls back or does the wall pull back i can't quite make it out yeah i wasn't sure first if it was like a a swipe transition but it does look like there's some reveal that is made to cooper he's standing there and then from his perspective something moves out of the way to reveal what's in front of him yeah and in terms of getting around casting problems We've already seen the arm replaced by an electric tree, yeah. which was an interesting <laughs> uh, solution. Yeah. And now we get Philip Jeffries replaced by a giant smoking kettle. Yes. <laughs> Is there any way I can describe it? Yeah, it's... Uh, so I think... Okay, so I think we're not going to get an obvious <laughs> David Bowie cameo before the season ends. But it's interesting now that it makes sense to have redubbed his voice in the uh, rerun of the scene from Fire Walk With Me in part 14. Because the implication from that was, well, why redub his voice unless he's going to have more dialogue? You won't, have to have, you won't have to have him appear, but he must be saying something else so they want to have the voice consistently used. Um, and yeah, so Cooper comes across the long-lost Philip Jeffries and... Yeah, he's turned into a into a kettle. Now, it's like a kettle. There's s- steam or smoke coming out. Uh, certainly the steam reminds... I mean, in terms of like the actual steampunk idea, it fits mm. with what you saw in the black and white zone as well, where that big roof mm, was yeah. all steampunky with cogs and all kinds of crazy things. And there was that weird golden trumpet, yeah. um, etc. It's, it, it's interesting that he's turned into that. It doesn't seem like a very advanced thing. Yeah, and it does remind me a lot of that bell that was in um, the giant and Senorita Dido's house. Yeah. Um, and also on top of Nido's spaceship as well. Yeah. So, you know, the imagery is there, but it almost seems like it predates all of that in some respects. It's a very primitive form. It's just a silhouette almost of that shape. Now, do you think that Jeffries is that whole thing? Is he the ball and the kettle? Is he just the, the smoke or the steam? Yeah, like like is he is he somehow incorporeal and is inhabiting the kettle? Yeah. <laughs> in order to contain his form. It'll make you think differently when you make a cup of tea now, won't it? <laughs> and, you, and you see steam coming out of it, you'll be like, mm, mm. my kettle is inhabited. Yeah. If it starts showing me coordinates, I'm gonna get worried. <laughs> well that's the thing, is that ball there to kind of capture or translate the messages which are coming out of the kettle mm. in some way? Yeah, because he doesn't read the coordinates out to to him. He smokes them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do think I mean I mean do you think it's a callback to 
in some way the ties to Native American mythology where you would have like smoke signals? I don't know. I don't know because other, otherwise the smoke is just... Is it a sign that Philip is in there? God, I don't know. Mm. I mean, I find it odd that Philip is also talking forwards. I mean, I know you wouldn't necessarily be able to see the way that a kettle was talking, but you can hear, still hear if somebody's yeah. talking backwards or not. And he's talking forwards. Yeah. And obviously the voice of whoever it is that called Mr. C the night he killed Arya was also talking forwards on the phone. Although he, although their voice was disguised, hmm. they were talking forwards. Hmm. And these are the only two lodgy people. Cooper talks forwards in the Red Room and, and various iterations of, of where is, he's been in the Black Lodge. And now we see Mr. C and Philip Jeffries talking forwards to each other in a place where we have seen another lodge inhabitant in right outside talking backwards. Yeah. So I don't know what that means. If Jeffries has in some way become a lodge spirit or, or is now in living in a, a lodge place, does it mean that humans can change their form? Can they become spirits or can they become imbued with lodginess? And is that what's happened to Laura? It could be. So that could be why she's... You know, there is a question over what she was before in light of what's happened in The Return. But it would be interesting if she has now become, you know, a denizen of the lodge in some way. But it's also interesting that she doesn't speak forwards in those scenes as well. Yeah. So that would that would that would maybe argue against it. But there is something definitely funny about um, the rules that this might be creating by having people doing that. All I remember is is from. Uh, you know, fire walk with me in the missing pieces. The fact that when Philip Jeffries, as portrayed by Bowie, is zapping around, you always see kind of smoke rising off him when he's doing that. So mm. it's interesting that uh, they're calling back to that now in the form of him being potentially just smoke, having been zapped around so many times. Yeah. And the conversation they have together is strange, and not just because he's a talking kettle. <laughs> um, he seems shocked this is actually Cooper because he says oh it's you and he, and then he says my god it's like he's not just not expecting him but actually surprised that this is actually Cooper or a, ver or a version of him yeah like that there is a question over what that really means um I think it's on one hand it ties back to the unfamiliarity that Mr. C had when he was calling Philip Jeffries. And he said, you know, is and this is Philip Jeffries, isn't it? Mm. Um, it's almost like they, like maybe they, because he also makes reference to them talking. But the scene that it cuts to is again a clip from Fire Walk With Me. Yeah. So maybe they've never actually properly spoken since that moment. You know, a Cooper iteration and uh, Philip Jeffries. And and after that, they've just been using intermediaries or communicating through non-verbal means. Yeah, because when Mr. C remembers Philip Jeffries appearing and talking about Judy or not talking about Judy, hmm. and he says this, and Jeffries says, so you are Cooper, as if he'd, there was any doubt about whether it really was or hmm. did he not have Cooper's memories or... 
or what that means. I mean, this does still seem to be Mr. C. Yeah. Um, but it does, it, like, it just strikes me how they actually have taken potentially a throwaway line from Fire Walk With Me, because that may never have been followed up. That, yeah. you know, who do you think that is there? And turned it into this conundrum that actually has sent ripples through the last 25 years of Twin Peaks mythology. Because <laughs> actually it's a fundamental question. Did he know from being able to travel around that both Cooper and his shadow self would ultimately exist? Is that what he's referring to? Or was he referring to the fact that at that point in 1989, the shadow self was uh, already at the forefront of Cooper? I don't think that's true. I think he was just pointing out the fact there was the potential for there to be two Coopers. Um, yeah. Like, like one, well, one Cooper, but both halves of him essentially inhabiting the same person. Um, but again, it ties back to the fact, and it's a scene that they don't show here in the flashback, the one where Cooper is looking at himself on the security camera. Mm. And by looking at the camera, going into the control room and having a look, there is one point when he can see himself on the screen whilst he's watching it as well. Yeah. Implying that he is able to somehow use the, um, yeah, I mean, maybe just using the ability to uh, transmit an image as a signal in some way to reveal two different Coopers. Um, it's also the scene where he sees Philip Jeffries walk past as well on the camera. But there's something about the fact that in that scene, I think it was just foreshadowing the fact that ultimately the two parts of Cooper would ultimately become separated into two different forms in the real world uh, even though they entered as one uh, when Cooper entered the Black Lodge at the end of season two. Yeah and then he starts asking him about Judy who is Judy? Does Judy want something from me? Why didn't you want to talk about Judy? And I don't know why he suddenly feels that Judy is really important other than the fact that at that on that one occasion when Philip Jeffries appeared, he didn't want to talk about her. I I I don't know why Mister C would necessarily therefore think that Judy wanted something from him. It was a really odd thing to ask. Yeah, it's odd because for him to have a flashback to what happened in 1989, and remember that line of dialogue, and suddenly it holding tremendous importance now, but potentially not having importance up until now. Yeah. It's very weird, but again, it seems like a deliberate thing that's being introduced to the audience as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot that's happened in the last two hours, which have been to do with saying, for those of you who haven't watched Fire Walk with me, these are the critical points. But then Jeffries says, why don't you ask Judy yourself and gives Mr. Z the coordinates, and they look like the same coordinates that Diane was looking at, which leads to Twin Peaks. Yeah, that 4 8 something five one something it's all a bit hard to see but you can almost see the the degree symbol as well in there as well in plan these are these are coordinates rather than just numbers on a phone or something like that yeah but i thought that ray had already given mr c the coordinates or certainly something written on a piece of paper yeah but it could just be the same coordinates yeah and then philip jeffrey says you've already met judy yeah but i'm not sure when in time if you think of the storyline in a linear fashion from Philip Jeffrey's perspective, I don't know when in the story this is. I mean, this is all going to get a bit river song, but is he experiencing things in a different order to the linear Earth time? 
so in Philip Jeffrey's presence, Cooper has already met Judy, but maybe Cooper hasn't met Judy yet in the timeline that we're seeing things happening. Yeah, or maybe um, maybe the real Cooper has Dougie Coop met Judy. Well, that's the, yeah. So it is the same. I mean, this is the thing. So the the Coopers that we're seeing are the same Cooper, and they should technically have the same. So you know, one Cooper went into the lodge. Yeah. And um, it's not that two now you know have come out, but it's the same Cooper, but they're shadow versions of each other. Yeah. So it's his spirit has been split into the light half. Or the, and the dark half, or potentially a split has happened along a, you know, a moral crack rather than <laughs> um, simple good and evil. Um, but yeah, so Mr. C and Dougie, although they might be buried in Dougie, must have the same rooted memories. Hmm. And there is a question over whether even their current memories are being shared as well. I mean, they might still have an awareness of each other subconsciously. Like maybe Mr. C does have an awareness of Dougie, but and Dougie might have one of Mr. C, but maybe it's not as clear to him because his uh, mental faculties are somewhat disabled at the moment. Yeah, I mean, if, if you think of who Cooper or Dougie Coop has met that Mr. C hasn't met, obviously you've got the people that Cooper met falling through the purple zone yeah so you met nido and you met american girl yeah and nido has fallen through some portal into twin peaks which could be at the coordinates that he has yeah so that's one possibility for who judy is that cooper has met judy and if they are essentially the same person then he has already met judy and so that that fits with some of the mythology around fire walk with me because judy was originally meant to be the twin sister of Josie and some people obviously have speculated that Nido might actually be Josie's sister but then it's also odd because they could have just got Joan Chen back to be her own twin it would have been a lot easier yeah um so it's possible that Nido is Judy but it's also now unlikely that Judy is actually related to Josie because even that was something which existed in a script but never made it to screen yeah and then out of the lodge, he's met Janie, he's met some people at work, um, he's met Candy, Mandy and Sandy. Yeah. Um, but there's no obvious candidate for someone who would be Judy. Yeah, and certainly Janie is likely to be unconnected to this because I, I you know, I still feel, although I'm, un- well, although I don't know if the Diane Janie connection is as real as Diane claims it is. Mm. Um, I don't think she will turn out to be Judy. Um, do you think there's any possibility that Candy, Mandy, and Sandy are somehow three different split versions of the same character? Oh man! <laughs> what the? If they merged together, they would be Judy. Or be somebody. <laughs> it's possible. It's odd. I mean, I, you know, I was just thinking about this. I mean, we you know we talk about the shadow self being two, but is there is there a possibility that somebody could split into three, and that's how you get Candy, Sandy, Mandy? Yeah. Existing in the existing in the Las Vegas storyline. Yeah. Uh, we've also had slot machine lady. She didn't have a name. She's Judy. That's a wild twist. <laughs> that's a wild twist. Yeah. <laughs> um, who else do we have? We have. Well, I mean, obviously, it could be, it could be Laura. Yeah. Um. 
I kind of don't think it's Laura, because I think Laura is bigger than all of this. <laughs> you know, I, th I think she was never part of uh, the Judy plotline because mm. she was so important as her own entity in some way. Wasn't there in some season three that existed in another dimension where it got made way back when, wasn't there going to be a red-headed Cheryl Lee character? Yeah. Could that still happen? Could there be another Not with another three hours version? to go. Well, I, oh no, to be honest, anything can happen in the next three hours. <laughs> anything so, can happen in the next three hours. <laughs> yeah, so either... So I think, you know, it's possible. It's unlikely. It probably will happen. <laughs> it might not happen. I don't know anymore. Um, yeah, it's... Yeah, like, I, I still get the feeling that, yeah, that Laura is separate in all this. I don't, I don't think Laura's going to end up being Judy. But what we do have is that, you know, is and some people have already been speculating this as well uh we have this issue that maybe judy is a code name for garland briggs yeah so you know way back at the end of season two when uh briggs has been drugged by uh windham earl he is mumbling incoherently and he makes reference to judy garland we know that there are lots of wizard of oz references which appear to be peppered throughout the Twin Peaks mythology, but very heavily in the return as well. Now, is it possible that Judy is a code name for Major Briggs? Uh, somebody who everyone appears to have met, Mr. C, original Cooper, both timelines, etc. Possibly. But you know that bit from the missing pieces? Um when they're at the hotel. Yeah. Is it definitely a woman who's left the message for him? Yeah, so, yeah, no, that, that that's true. So, yeah, so, firstly, well, in this scene, he, Philip Jeffries does not make reference to a he or a she when he refers to yeah. Judy. But in Fire Walk With Me, he does appear to refer to Judy as female, both in terms of visiting her in Seattle and also in the cut scene in Buenos Aires, Judy is referred to as... Well, by Philip Jeffries, he goes to the concierge and he says, uh, is Miss Judy staying here? Mm. So it's so again, it's one of the things which implies that Judy, at least as Philip Jeffries knows her or knows the character of Judy, Judy is female. And then the concierge says the senorita left a message for you or something like senorita had to go but she left a message for you or something like that yeah now yeah that that's that is i think something that jumps out because obviously although they're speaking spanish because they're in buenos aires there's only one other character who's been referred to as senorita mm. and that's been senorita dido mm. and well i suppose the one that's that's an extremely interesting link because you have a character who's been i mean that's the one time there's some consistency mm. and what's interesting is that obviously that scene is without dialogue so we never hear senorita dido's name being used but she's listed as that and it's odd to give her that name yeah but how it all fits into things i mean has cooper actually met her well not yet i suppose because maybe the scene with the fireman yeah if that's taking place in the future yeah. Maybe at that point, Cooper does meet Judy because we know that that scene is happening potentially towards the end of the return in the way that the events are being presented to us. And maybe just out of shot is Senorita Dido, who ends up being Judy. 
if that's possible. I, I think at this point, everyone's been Judy. Everyone has been Judy, and no one, <laughs> and actually, no one has been Judy at the same time, <laughs> uh, very obviously. Um, and also for all the names that that Audrey and uh, Charlie dumped on us a couple of weeks back, <laughs> none of them was Judy. So uh, thanks for that as well. No. Do you think that Judy is actually the teacup that he's been searching for? <laughs> <laughs> what a twist that would be. I suppose one thing that might add a bit more weight to the fact that Judy could be Laura, even though I don't really think it is, could be that we're seeing all these characters being given coordinates that may be leading to the character of Judy, who may be Laura. You know, you can argue it that way, but that would tie in with the fact that back in part two, Dale was given that message by Leland to find Laura as well. So maybe you've got certain characters in the real world, um, most notably Mr. C, being given specific coordinates to find Laura, whereas Dale, who only got his information whilst he was in the lodge, was simply given that message to do exactly the same thing. So you could argue that maybe that's. You know, that's a way that you could interpret the uh, reveal to be that Judy is Laura as well. And then both Coops are looking for her in slightly different ways. So then the phone starts ringing and he keeps asking, who is Judy, who is Judy? But Jeffries isn't responding anymore at all. And Mr. C seems to realise that he needs to pick up the phone. Maybe he realises that the place is going to move and he has to go. Because um, when he picks up the phone, it transports him back to the phone booth outside the convenience store. Yeah. And there's some weird glitchy effects where he's kind of holding the phone close to his face, far away. It's kind of moving backwards and forwards in time a little bit. Just like the static and the electricity that's sounding everywhere is about to create the the you know the disappearance of the, uh, of the convenience store. Yeah. And waiting for him outside the convenience store is... is... Judy! <laughs> What if Richard Horn is Judy? It's not Linda. <laughs> um, yeah, who's clearly followed him from the farm. Yeah. Seems to be pretty good at tailing people. Uh, and he recognises him as Cooper. Yeah. Because well, we finally find out for certain that Audrey is his mother. So there goes the Donna theory. Um, there Aud- is a caveat. He thinks Audrey is his mother. <laughs> <laughs> the theory will not die. In his fancy FBI suit mm. that Audrey still has. Which is odd because does this mean that Audrey hasn't been in a coma the whole time? Otherwise, why would there be a picture that he would see? Yeah, unless she always had a picture of him from beforehand and he's just found it amongst her possessions or something. Mm. But also, it's the first time a character in the main real world timeline of events has actually referenced Audrey Horn. Yeah. So that's interesting that she does definitely exist and has existed as as a character in the recent past. But it's also odd that there's no indication that she's interacting with people currently in in the real world timeline. Yeah. But he seems to does he still think that he is with the FBI yeah because he pulls a gun on him and he's I think he says like you are FBI yeah and he doesn't seem to know that he's been missing or or that anything there's no indication that anything negative has happened which would lead someone to believe that he wasn't 
yeah with the fbi anymore yeah it's kind of it's very strange because it also means that amongst audrey's documents or pictures or whatever it says that he's an fbi agent yeah so it's not just a picture there's more to it than that he does know something i suppose what we're going to get in part 16 17 or 18 is the uh content of the drive that they both make when um cooper uh basically manages to get the jump on richard knocks him out says don't do that again get in the truck we're going um, so is this going to be some kind of father-son road trip thing where he's going to explain a huge chunk of plot about what's happened in the last 25 years? Um, it's just odd. I mean, does this mean that there's some kind of team-up that started to develop? Is this a paternal relationship which Cooper has acknowledged or not realised up until now? Yeah, because he doesn't kill him Yeah. straight away, even though he's recognised him. Yeah, but certainly it's odd because he's quite passive in the scenes where he's talking to Philip Jeffries. He seems like he's communicating with people of his own kind. Yeah. When he's interacting with Lodge-like people. But then, at this scene, he's back to being the kind of more thuggish, violent uh, Mr. C that we are used to seeing in The Return. Yeah, because maybe when he's around other Lodge people, he's not suddenly, you know, the most powerful, strongest person in the room, and therefore he he does act slightly different. Yeah. Because he does seem to act slightly different, but it could simply be that once he's back around humans again, he knows that he's... In control of the situation, yeah, and he and he projects himself in that way, yeah. So so him and Richard Horn drive off presumably towards Twin Peaks. Although Richard Horn's not going to want to go back to Twin Peaks because he's wanted there. That is true. Um, so how how's that going to work? Because because now Cooper has definitely got the coordinates. Yeah, he is now going there to find the mystery. I think of what's on his playing card. Yeah. Whether he knows exactly what it is or not, I don't know, actually. But he's going there. He has coordinates and he's got Richard in the car and Richard does not want to go there. But I don't think he's going to have much choice in this. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, so then as they drive off, we kind of get scenes that are very reminiscent of the creation of the convenience store. We see smoke billowing out of it, but also this kind of weird glitchy time business again. Things popping in and out. And it gradually itself seems to fade out of existence and potentially not not just out of its presence in that location, but it seems to have, because it's moved from somewhere else, Mm. maybe it's disappeared or reappear somewhere else when necessary. But I think it's kind of interesting that you have this in an episode talking about Norma's franchises. (laughs) Maybe there are franchises of the convenience store all over the place. (laughs) And I think it was two weeks ago now, um, part 13, when we were talking about the episode where Sonny Jim is playing on his uh, new gym set sent by the Mitchams and you get the Swan Lake music playing. And in the same episode, you get the first reference to the Dutchman's when Ray tells Mr. C that that's where Philip Jeffries is, even though he thinks it's not a real place. At the, so two weeks ago, we were speculating we're not speculating, it was, it was basically some kind of weird tangent that I went off about Swan Lake and the significance of the music from the ballet and the story. And then also the reference to Dutchman's being something to do with, potentially something to do with the Flying Dutchman and the, the kind of legend of the ghost ship that is doomed to sail the seas and never be able to come into port. And at the time it was just kind of like a, a throwaway oh well this is the only thing that Dutchman's really makes me think of 
when it refers to you know him being nowhere and being in a place called the Dutchman's and the and the connection between that and Swan Lake in the same episode but watching the convenience store disappear like that disappear like a a ghost ship dematerializing it actually made me think of it again like maybe the convenience store itself is like the flying dutchman in that it can never fully exist in the world it can't be in it can't solidify it can't be in one place and i went back and i was reading about some of the history of the legend and and where it was first referenced and how old it is and it seems to have quite a confusing origin because some people say that it's the name of the ship some people say it's the name of the captain of the ship um there seem to be two different dutch sea captains who could potentially be the origin of the story as the story got sort of mythologized and entered sort of seafaring folklore over the centuries um it's actually really kind of interesting to to look at the um history of the myth and how it developed over the time and when the first written references to it can be found uh it seems to be like a hundred year gap between when these captains were alive and they did really exist and the first references to them potentially being the flying dutchman or the captain of the flying dutchman anyway it, it the, there are lots of variations of the legend as to how it came to be a ghost ship and and where it's supposed to be but but essentially it all boils down to this idea of a, a roving vessel that can never fully exist and therefore can never die the crew can't die um they're just kind of sailing the seas forever and they they materialize and then they're gone so part of the myth came from sailors seeing that they had seen this ghost ship that seemed to be there and then it just seemed to vanish again um you know they would say that they had, they had seen it sailing towards a port and then disappeared or that it was on the horizon and then when they got there there was nothing there there are some accounts which people say can be kind of attributed to weird weather conditions where um you can see on the horizon in the sky a reflection a kind of shimmering reflection of an object that is actually below the horizon and under the right weather conditions and that maybe people saw some kind of weird shimmering reflection of a ship that therefore they couldn't actually see the ship because it was below the horizon anyway um, this this is this is an unnecessary tangent at this point but it was just the way that it dematerialized like that that made me think of the ghost ship idea again yes <laughs> <laughs> yes i 100% endorse this message <laughs> So then we have some beautiful shots of the woods surrounding Twin Peaks and ambling through it is Mark Frost and his dog. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we see a, a little cameo by a co-creator Mark Frost reprising his character of Cyril Pons from uh, the original series. But uh, he's gone from intrepid news reporter covering, I think, what happened at the mill fire mm. um, to you know wandering around looking slightly disheveled. Uh, giant hat big boots on things like that with his dog um but that's not the point of what's going on there's something else going on in the woods yeah so Stephen and gersten are huddled 
next to a tree. They're both clearly freaking out about something and what's happened to trigger this, we can only kind of speculate. But he's saying, I did do it. And she's saying, no, no, she did it. And uh, you're just stoned. Which seem to be references to Becky. Yeah. Um, now, we've already had a strange reference before when they were fighting, Stephen and Becky, when uh, he says, I know what you did. But we we don't know what that was re- with reference to. So whether this thing that he has done and she says, no, no, she did it, is the thing that he was accusing Becky of doing or something new that could potentially have happened to Becky, Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, so it could be the, the fact that he is admitting to maybe killing her or something and Gersten might be saying no she bought it on herself in some way um, but it's clear that they are both completely tripped out of their minds on Sparkle yeah. I presume he's got his crazy itchy leg which calls back to the character who's played by Sky Ferreira a few episodes back very briefly at the end of the episode who had that weird rash uh, uh, under her arm yeah in uh, the booth of mystery yeah in the booth of mystery um yeah, so it's clear that you take Sparkle, you trip for a very, very long time, you get very confused, you get very agitated, and then you get very itchy as well. <laughs> yeah, and, and he's already seemed to decide to kill himself. And you see shots from his perspective of the woods kind of going in and out of focus a little bit. And he's wondering whether when he goes up, as he calls it, he'll be with the rhinoceros or the lightning in a bottle or be completely turquoise. Yeah. I don't know what he's doing, but I think he's on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it's very odd. So I, the dialogue is virtually incomprehensible in the soundtrack. It's very weird. It's almost like, you know, that scene in Fire Walk With Me, the, uh, the pink room sequence. Yeah. Um, it's very hard to work out what the hell anyone is saying. Yeah. And it's interesting they do that again, but it's kind of very frustrating. Yeah. Um, but you do just kind of pick out words and things and this rhinoceros thing that made me think of again the conversation about the zebra and the penguin yeah which again that same girl was having with another girl in in the booth of mystery uh when she was talking about animals and so some some there's something to do with taking sparkle being very itchy and talking about animals and <laughs> i'm not even going to begin to speculate on what that means yeah maybe they've all been to twin Peaks zoo <laughs> And one of the few bits that is, you know, remotely intelligible when Stephen is sort of ranting and raving and um, sparkled out is his insistence that you know he's a high school graduate again and again, which is kind of an odd thing to say. But I don't know. Do you think that maybe he's actually referring to the fact that his life is kind of ruined and he's young? He's kind of you know he's kind of acting beyond his years and what he's doing are we meant to sort of have some sympathy or something for what's going on i don't know i mean it you do think back to that sort of disastrous job interview Mm. that he had with mike where mike tells him his cv was terrible Mm. and nobody would ever hire him and you know it, it it feels slightly rather tragic if he's basically reaching for his one achievement in life which was to graduate high school yeah which you know, people are told, oh, stay in school, graduate high school, it's what, it's what you have to mm. do. And then for some people, it leads to nothing mm. at all. Um, and, you know, maybe that was his accomplishment or, or maybe he was 
trying to say that that's all he had accomplished. Mm. I'm not sure, but he's he does come across as a a pathetic figure in both senses of the word. So she's trying to get him to not kill himself. Um, He wonders if she's going to come up with him and realises that she's not. And then they get interrupted by Cyril walking the dog. And... They freak completely. They completely freak out, yeah. Yeah, so Gerson freaks out and runs around the other side of a tree as if she's trying to hide. And it's the action not of someone who thinks that they're being caught having an affair by some randomer, but it feels more like the action of someone who doesn't want there to be a witness to her being with someone who may have just killed someone. Yeah. Who otherwise no one would have necessarily known that she was there. Yeah, it's it's odd because I, I have no idea how Gersten is fitting into this plotline. Yeah. Given that Donna is not in it. And Gersten is, and I just don't understand the, the actual nature of her arc in this and how it relates to things. And certainly the fact that we're seeing this scene in light of the things we've seen between Stephen and Becky as well. I don't know really what's going on, but I think there will be probably one or two more scenes that maybe place it in a bit more context. But I don't think it's going to be that much of a side plot anymore because... It's on, you know, I think I think something has happened and, you know, I don't think we're going to see a flashback to what's happened, but we may find out what's happened later on. Yeah, and then we get a shot of the trailer. So Cyril goes to the trailer park and tells Carl something of what he's just seen and points to the trailer and says, and he lives in that trailer over there. Yeah, where the coffee cup was thrown earlier on. and Yeah. And Carl is, he clearly, well, he's been aware for a while that something is not right in that trailer. Um, I think it's just, yeah, it's an odd, it's an odd thing because I think there's there's no payoff to this scene at all, which is odd given that we're seeing the conclusion. Well, we're starting to see arcs starting to conclude, and this mm. is almost starting a little bit. It's it's a bit weird, and most critically, it's you know, I have no idea why they brought back Cyril Pons. <laughs> you know, he was he seemed to be fine. He was on he was on the TV news, <laughs> and now he's uh, living in the Fat Trout trailer park. Yeah. But also the the way it ends with that shot of the trailer and the ominous music, it it felt similar to me to the way, you know, when Andy's going to meet the farmer yeah. and he doesn't turn up and then you see the shot of the, the house and the ominous music and then you don't see what's inside the house. Um, if indeed that has happened yet, because uh, I'm still not entirely sure where that fits in with everything mm. given what was on Andy's watch. But we haven't had any sign that someone was found inside the farmhouse yeah but we can only assume that something bad was happening inside yeah and that was to do with richard yeah so yeah it's yeah it's unclear how it connects but there is a there is some kind of feeling that there's a link between um, how these things are being portrayed yeah and one little minor thing i remember before we move on is the fact that when we see gersten in the woods Oh, you know, it may just be a similar looking ring, but it does look like she's wearing something that's very similar to the Owl Cave ring in terms of its, you know, its brass or gold um, enclosure mm. and the actual band. Um, but the stone itself looks red, not green. Mm. It's weird that it looks kind of similar, but she does have a ring on her other hand, so maybe she just likes wearing rings, I don't know. But it was interesting that it looked quite similar, but a different colour. So now we cut to the roadhouse and... This seems to be the evening 
when James and Freddie have got off work after Freddie filled James in on the whole saga of his green glove. And now they've gone to the roadhouse, which is what they were planning to do. And indeed, Renee is there. And James says hi. And it turns out that Renee's husband is Chuck, he of the certifiable nature. And he lives up to his billing from Audrey by immediately trying to punch James's lights out for saying hello to Renee. Yeah. So this is a this is a weird scene. It's very brief and it serves one purpose, which is one to bring up a character who Audrey has been talking about. <laughs> uh and two to demonstrate um a mechanism to put uh Freddie and James in police custody, I think. Yeah. So Chuck and some unnamed friend I think. Um, he might have a name in the credits, I'm not sure. Um, they start kicking the living daylights out of James. Yeah. And Freddy, well, he says that he's holding back and he's trying not to hurt them too yeah. much. But he still punches their lights out uh, without even kind of breaking a sweat. And it's interesting that every time he, he does this kind of one-punch move straight to the head, uh, everything glitches for a second, mm. as in the you know uh, the audio, and the audio is actually the sound which is playing on a stereo in the roadhouse. Yeah. So, yeah, backtracking a little bit, uh, the MC is the same as before, yeah. and he's very excited to be playing ZZ Top yes. for some reason. Yeah, he does the best dancing ever. <laughs> Smart dressed um, man. Whilst he's on stage, and it's it's very odd because that implies that when Freddie punches somebody the effect has some effect on the audio and the electricity in the in the roadhouse in yeah. some way it's not like a just a physical thing it's having some bigger effect almost like it's a a power of some kind which is emitting something which interrupts the audio that everyone is hearing um but again when the zz top thing i th- i thought it would have been really great if they'd actually shown up but then shown up kind of all covered in like charcoal like woodsmen because <laughs> they basically are the two original woodsmen yeah they are um but it'd be really cool. It's kind of odd that they would choose them because they were uh, they're beardy and quite short as well, like all the other woodsmen. Not really tall woodsmen. It's very <laughs> odd. But I, f- I feel like this is basically showing Freddy's power to the audience, and yet it's not even his full power because he was trying not to hurt them. Yeah. In the same way that he was trying not to uh, completely crush those nuts into oblivion when he mm. was trying to open them up. So I wonder if Freddy's powers will come in useful later in the return. Mm, I wonder. <laughs> mm. So, to Las Vegas, finally, for the first time in what feels like ages. And for the first time in this very long podcast episode. <laughs> we get an establishing shot of Las Vegas. And uh, the hapless Las Vegas FBI office have got what they think is Douglas and Jane Jones in for questioning, along with their kids, uh, plural. And you get this wonderful kind of, just this tableau of this grumpy family sitting in this room in their look like their dressing gowns who've been dragged out of bed or something like that um and you can just imagine what daily life is like in the las vegas office as he's just kind of chasing wilson down the corridor going wilson wilson but it is interesting because we wondered last week about why cole didn't give any more information other than the fact that he was looking for a douglas jones he didn't say 
you know, the wife is Janie E, etc., or even Jane Evans. Um, so what's interesting here is that clearly that that information must have been passed to them as well. Yeah. So although we thought oh, that's a bit weird, it's clear that the FBI in Las Vegas know that it's Douglas Jones who's married to a Jane Jones. Yeah. And also um, has one kid as well. Yeah. And his hapless assistant, Wilson, doesn't realise that it's one kid and not multiple kids. <laughs> not an entire extended family. It looks like, I don't know, it's like, is that an uncle sitting in the room? You know, there's a guy who's sitting on the right-hand side and he's kind of slightly obscured by the door, but you can kind of see him through the yeah, door. Yeah. But the mother and father are there. So who is that guy? Is it a random uncle who's in there? I don't know. I, I choose to believe it is. <laughs> <laughs> and also in Las Vegas, Hutch and Chantel make their first trip for their double headed Mr. C sent them on and she gate crashes a little meeting between Mr. Todd and Roger where they're trying to figure out why Sinclair hasn't contacted them and where he might be and Chantel just wanders in very casually shoots them both and just wanders off again yeah well it has to return to uh, to finish off Roger I yeah. presume yeah who has this crazy kind of uh, overblown stumble during his death scene whereas what's his face Mr. Todd he seems to be the victim of a uh, dodgy CGI head explosion. <laughs> yeah, I presume he wasn't gasping for anything yeah. after getting shot in the head. <laughs> and from the sound of it, uh, Chantal and Hutch are off to get some Wendy's. Yeah. <laughs> and then back in Twin Peaks, uh, Hawk and Bobby have arrested both James and Freddie yeah. and are leaving them in the cell. And we find out that certifiable chuck and his mate are both in intensive care and once again no one but chad and nido seem to acknowledge the presence of the weird drunk in the final cell bleeding from his nose and mouth possibly billy it's very odd it's a bit like so i still there's something funny about the scenes with red doing the same thing Mm. where certain characters can perceive them and other ones don't acknowledge them to the point where it's unclear if they've seen them or not yeah. Also, he's in the the cell at the far end, isn't he? Yeah. Which is the cell that the very first time you see a woodsman, the woodsman's in the cell at the far end from where Bill yeah. Hastings is, right down at the very end. Yeah. But it's it's weird because now you have, well, I'm sure it's important that James is there, but uh, this has really been a mechanism, like we we're saying earlier, to get Freddie mm. and his crazy fireman uh, given magic green glove punch <laughs> in the same area as Nido. Yeah. Probably so my presumption given what Andy said in part 14 about the fact she needs protecting means that he is there to protect Nido. He's going to be a bodyguard for her in some way I think in the future. Yeah, because I'm assuming he can punch his way out of that cell door if he really needed to. Yeah. And it's interesting that um they notably say I'll oh, put him in number 8, which yeah. is the room that Philip Jeffries is in, in that motel, which is odd. I mean, numbers mean something in the world of Twin Peaks. I didn't didn't the significant numerology in it, but numbers themselves hold relevance when they're repeated again and again, Mm. or iterations of the same number. Um, And again, you get Nido making these strange monkey-like chirps, which are repeated by the drunk in the cell. Which, again, going back to what we were saying earlier on, links to potentially the monkey that says Judy as well in Fire Walk With Me, which was 
also the face revealed underneath the grandson when he was wearing the mask that is very similar to the jumping man's mask yes <laughs> and actually while I, yeah and while we're there also um you know the other thing that links to that is the fact that the woodsman who's at the entrance to the room when cooper goes you know after entering when he goes up the stairs or no no where he's waiting before he goes in yeah um the woodsman there he has a big stick with him which yeah. he kind of bangs on the ground and that's actually very similar i think to the the little stick that the grandson has when he's dancing and skipping outside the motel when Leland leaves the motel after he gets terrified when he sees Laura as one of the three prostitutes who he's gone to meet at the Red Diamond City Motel. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that was a very long train of thought and I wasn't sure if it was going to end but it did but it means something but I don't know what <laughs> so one other thing I suppose is given that we have Freddy and Nido as well as James down in the uh, in the prison do you think that this is part of some you know crazy plan by, by the fireman character to get these characters together so is that going to be something that plays out? And would it actually, you know, is it just those two characters, Nido and Freddy, who are important? Or do you think there's a reason why James is there? And potentially a reason why Chad is there and that drunk um, is there? Because there hasn't been any explanation for why he's there, but he does seem to maybe, I mean, his his sole purpose could be to collect, his sole purpose could be to connect the events there to what Audrey is talking about. Yeah, and also the fact that he repeats the last thing that somebody says. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to become important in yeah. any way. Which is a trait which we've seen in Dougie. Yeah. But it's unclear why this drunk character is doing that. Yeah. Well, maybe he's just such a really annoyed Chad. <laughs> <laughs> what, so he's, only, he's somebody that only Chad can see? Maybe he's Chad's personal hell following <laughs> him around. Um, yeah, I'd, maybe it is important that James is down there as well. Um, I mean, the fireman does seem to know what's going to happen um, in order to send Freddy there. Yeah. And I think I think we've got to work out as well how this fits in with what Andy has seen in his vision. So we've seen a lot of what was presented to him by the fireman, but there are lots of things that still remain, I think, mm. that are a bit out of context. So actually, the person who might tie all of this together is Andy. Yeah. Because he seems to know about Mr. C and Dougie slash Dale Coop existing both in the real world at the same time. Um, He seems to have an awareness of the woodsman and he knows, well, strangely, he knows about the convenience store as well. But how, you know, how that's important to him, I don't know. But but he's seen a lot of the mythology, um, mainly from part eight, played out to him. So it's unclear how he will translate that information but he was very certain that he needed to to protect Nido from somebody who's trying to kill her now this could all I think tie into the fact that Sarah Palmer in a moment of lucidity warned that men are coming yeah so maybe that's what we're about to see maybe that's what's you know maybe that's the event which is there that we expected to break the uh the happiness that Ed and Norma are feeling and then very briefly back with Hutch and Chantel and we heard her before asking him to get her some 
food, some burger and fries, which she has done with ketchup. There's not as much ketchup as she would like. Given that there are a couple of psychopaths, they do seem to really love each other. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually, like, it's nice. It gives... It's always been an interesting thing with Twin Peaks that every character gets their moments. They're memorable for some specific reason. And I like the fact that they haven't just gone with one hit person. They've gone with a couple. Yeah. It just adds just a little element to it, which I think makes it very memorable and makes them a little bit more than just hitmen yeah. in some way. And they're sitting in their car basically um, talking about how you know it, it's, they feel that it's hypocritical for people to criticise them for killing when people have always done it yeah which is another one of these little asides i think that that, that creeps into twin peaks during the return um sort of making kind of some social commentary on on the world that i think is highly likely to be from the pen of mark frost yes <laughs> yeah and, and they kind of make you know make the point where you know if the government does it it's supposed to be all right and yet, when they do it, it's supposed to not be. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely Mark Frost. Which is an interesting point, but it won't be okay when they do it, when they try it on Dougie Coop at some <laughs> point in the very near future. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. And now, back with Dougie Coop, finally. Um, he's having another piece of chocolate cake. I don't know, how long has that cake been okay for now? It must be very stale, but I don't think he cares. No, I don't think he cares. And... First of all, I find it odd that he moves one of the salt and pepper shakers away from the other one. Like, there are two identical-looking objects, and he separates them. Yeah, so what I thought about that was it reminded him maybe of that bell-shaped thing. But I like yeah. your interpretation more, actually. He, he can see that there's something wrong with them being close together. As it's... in he's pointing out... Well, subconsciously, he knows these things are meant to be separate. Yeah. Um but they can be together and they can be separate. It's, it's something to do with that. Well, it's salt is doppel pepper. Salt is doppel pepper or pepper <laughs> is doppel salt. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. And then he just kind of prods the remote control until it switches on. And what I find interesting is that none of this is being prompted by Mike or visions of Mike or anything Logi. Because originally he was being led to do things that were beneficial to him hmm. by signs from the lodge so yeah. either mike directly speaking to him or the the red room signs above the casino machines um mike beckoning him into the the coffee shop to get the cherry pie but lately he's just been doing things of his own volition when he goes back into that coffee shop again to look at the cherry pie when uh sinclair's trying to poison him he's not being encouraged to do that by any lodge spirit that we can see and certainly there seems to be nothing that is encouraging him to put the TV on. And yet he coincidentally puts the TV on during the perfect point in Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, so it's odd. So firstly, he hears the characters talking about putting the old team back together. Mm. And that's what seems to grab him. And his expression changes, his his whole manner changes, like he's suddenly realising something. But he doesn't know what it means, which in itself is something that is very original dale cooper like yeah. his ability to know something is important without knowing exactly what the meaning of it is but then we get the character on screen um so so this is the namesake for which the character was called in twin peaks he says get me gordon cole and at that moment cooper he doesn't wake up per se 
but he senses the reality maybe that he has come from mm. for a moment he recognizes the name gordon cole so it hasn't been the coffee it hasn't been the cherry pie there are things that he recognizes and he likes intuitively but just hearing the name gordon cole perhaps in the context of putting the team back together yeah has made him realize all of a sudden who he may be it's almost like the the suppressed real cooper inside of him is able to uh find something in the real world to latch onto and it triggers what follows which are an alarming series of uh scenes i think uh where to be honest i was watching it a little bit through my hands because <laughs> i did not want to see him do what he eventually did yeah so he starts looking at the electrical socket again and it's the way he was drawn to it when he looked at the woman with the red shoes and the american flag and all that stuff in the police station and you hear the crackling of the electricity yes you wouldn't hear that normally do you think that's just something he's sensing mm. yeah and he he starts crawling over to it with his fork and at first he's he tries to put the prongs to the fork in and it won't quite go so then you see him turn it around and you're just thinking oh no you know no, what's gonna no, happen no. yeah and he just he has this weird kind of almost angry look on his face mm. when he jams it in. And I don't know, does, does he think that there's some part of him that is still trapped in there that he can get out? Does he think that he wants to go back to where he was? Is it something that's just going to kind of jolt him awake? Well, it's odd because electricity is everywhere in the world of Twin Peaks, but it's interesting that he chooses to do that because he wouldn't understand why it's pure instinct i think but it's not like he gets sucked in so i initially thought he was going to do that thing where his head gets sucked in first into the socket and maybe he gets called back maybe when he's able to realize who he is mike will summon him back somehow and do yeah. that but instead he deliberately electrocutes himself and it's not like he's trying to put his fingers in there yeah or reach into the socket and connect that way he wants to actually feel that electricity he knows that it's the power surging through that socket which is something that he needs to connect to or and it's either because he wants to collect uh, connect with the electricity or it's because it's um it's something where cooper inside might actually know that this is the thing that he needs to do to release himself from the shell of being in dougie coop perhaps yeah and for all the Arthurian references that we've sometimes had in Las Vegas, it's almost like a reverse sword in a stone moment where he jams the fork <laughs> into the ele into the electrical socket yeah. instead of pulling the sword out. Uh, yeah, I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm just reaching for any payoff to all the Arthurian stuff so far yeah. because, yeah. And I think it serves a. Uh... As a second very important PSA for this episode. <laughs> don't take drugs, kids, and don't put forks in electrical sockets. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so the, the lights flicker and Janie turns around and sees him and screams and then all the lights go out and you just hear Sonny Jim shouting, Mom, what happened? Yeah. So how is this going to be followed up, if you had to guess? Oh, God. I, is he dead? Um, is he dead in one way, but is he going to rejoin... So Mike said, one of you must die. Yeah. So is this him killing himself and releasing 
the half of Coop, which is in Dougie, um, back to the lodgers so it can be complete in some way? Has that returned him in some way? Or is the next episode going to begin with, uh, you know, Janie looking over him whilst he's in hospital as he wakes up having been electrocuted? Um, what do you think? Or is it, or is the scene going to continue from inside the house? I don't know. I mean, if if he is still alive, he would presumably have to be taken to hospital. Yeah. Um, the Las Vegas FBI is still looking for Douglas and Jane Jones, and presumably Hutch and Chantel are going to try and kill him. And worryingly, Chantel is complaining that she hasn't torched anyone in a long time, uh, which seems like a, a really dark precedent that they've been setting up for some time now because she was she only didn't talk to Warden Murphy because she was hungry at the time mm. um, I just don't know what it means I don't know who's going to get to them first um, if Hutch and Chantel are actually going to reach them before anybody else does because in the timeline I think that uh, the FBI are still well, as in Cole and the gang are still a couple of days behind what we're seeing in Las Vegas now so I don't know if they're actually on their way or presumably we'll see more of them next week because we didn't see any of them this week but that would also make sense because they've made the call to the FBI field office in Las Vegas and we're seeing their timeline now yeah so although we have stopped seeing what's happening with Cole and the gang maybe that timeline has continued with uh, Wilson etc at the FBI which might then bring it up to sync with what's happening now yeah so if um, he gets taken to hospital that could prevent Hutch and Chantel from finding them at their home if they're not there. But they could then follow a white BMW and end up finding Battling Bud yeah. who has the same car. Goodness knows what's going to happen next week. But do you, do you think that this is the moment when Coop comes back? I think yes. <laughs> so I think I think I mean, a lot of people have been, you know, these these three fifteen believers, three fifteeners, or whatever they're called, the ones who, um, sorry, I won't be that dismissive. Um, <laughs> uh, are the people who have kind of, you know, put forward that idea that Coop reemerged in episode three, mm. and then the real Cooper would um, come out in part fifteen. That appears to be what's happening now. However, I wouldn't be surprised if his current state persists for another episode and he is only really there in the two hour finale Mm. Um, it seems odd to have done it this early and leave still one more hour long part left before when actually there's still a lot of stuff that needs to be wrapped up in Las Vegas yeah Um, so I can see that maybe although Coop might be back he might be unconscious in the next hour but the thing is if it does resume with Cooper in hospital and actually he wakes up and maybe he is actually properly Dale Cooper I'm sure they won't do it that directly but it would be kind of funny if they have a callback to that scene near the start of season two after being shot and he came to and Lucy sort of recaps all the different things that have been happening (laughs) Um, it'd be kind of funny if there's some way that they incorporate that as well if he is going to wake up and then end up being uh, being Dale Cooper again it does need something like oh how long have I been out or something like that it's been like one night yeah and that'd be a very interesting way to play it because 
I think that, you know, the first things he says when he comes to, whether it's in this scene or, or when he actually returns properly as Dale Cooper, I think will be very interesting just in terms of explaining what kind of Cooper we have returning. And so then we get one really heartbreaking final call between Log Lady and Hawk, where she phones him at night, as we've seen her do many times now, and tells him that she's dying. And she clearly knows that she's she's going to die that evening. She tells him to remember what she told him when they were talking face to face about the one under the moon on Blue Pine Mountain. Hmm. And then she says, um, you know that death is just a change, not an end. And she says, my log is turning gold. The wind is moaning, I'm dying. And that's it. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's one of those moments when I think Twin Peaks can make you so utterly enthralled by the events on screen that it affects you in the most profound and gut-wrenching way possible um you know all the scenes with the log lady were always important she was very much the spiritual heart of the town in many respects and i think it's interesting that she was really the only connection for a long time between cooper and the world of the woods in the original series, which made her so prominent as well. Yeah. Her backstory was elaborated on quite extensively over the years. And that, and even when in Fire Walk With Me, she appears and has that brief scene where she meets Laura and speaks to her and uh, talks about fire then, and then actually can hear later on in, um, in the movie... Uh, when Laura is killed as well. The story relating to her husband, all these different things are so entwined in the mythology of the town and the characters that we remember. And certainly the return itself has so prominently featured her at key moments and allowed her to be this ever-present feeling of hope and leadership. Somebody who is guiding hawk who is actually able to carry out the things that she wants to do herself um, i think it's very poignant that she wants to still have the opportunity to try and communicate these messages to hawk mm. it's case been going on for a long time and it does make you have a very different perspective on things when you hear her talk like this but say it with such sort of bravery as well because she knows she knows what's coming but she's not afraid of it i think and the fact that she is able to relate the experience of understanding her own mortality to another character without it seeming manipulative or you know very schmaltzy it's it, you know it's a very direct way of approaching it but one which only she could deliver um it's an ex it's an extremely profound way of understanding death perhaps and again like we said at the very beginning of the episode i think this idea that an ending is just a transformation is uh very true here certainly the fact that even her log is turning gold and how that may relate to 
the pool of gold substance outside what may be the entrance to the White Lodge or certainly where the fireman lives. It may be the origin of the log in one respect, but also it's a sense it's returning to its spiritual place, certainly with the gold bead that, that was something that birthed um, Dougie in some mm. respects. Um, but more importantly, the gold orb that contains Laura. It does seem that the colour is indicative of the spiritual kind of ascension which she might be about to experience. And they even play the music which plays during the, the hit and run scene as well. When we see the boy's spirit, although it could be his pain and suffering, it's unclear. I think in this case it's, it, it's gold. I think that's the thing that being able to rise to a to its home almost and you kind of feel that maybe the log lady's origin was in you know i mean well it wasn't in the white lodge but she feels like somebody who was deeply connected to the positivity and hope and was deeply ingrained in the ongoing battle between the lodges in some respect where she was very firmly in the real world but on the side of the white lodge in doing things so then Hawk gathers everyone together in the conference room, Frank, Bobby, Andy and Lucy, to let them know that she passed away. And you realise how important she was to everybody in the room and how much respect they all had for her, um, that they're all so upset that, that she passed away. And then you get this beautiful fade between Hawk and moving over the tops of the trees in the forest and then a shot of the log lady's cabin with the lights going out inside yeah i think it's you know it's a very stoic fitting end to uh to margaret's arc in some respects the fact it ends in the woods with the lights going out it feels almost like the end of a fairy tale or something and like you say i think it's you know it's obviously very sad when you see it it's it's conveyed and, and this happens a lot in some of lynch's work where you see how distressed other characters are in a very honest way he never really leaves a scene to be experienced solely by um the viewer almost he likes to have it as well so that you see the effect of a character on the other characters it makes things seem far more real as well and actually i think one thing that was kind of sad about this as well is you realize that the two people missing from this are probably harry truman and cooper yeah who would have been the people who would have been in that scene as well yeah and uh, equally upset it it kind of hammers so many things home that we're reaching the end i think and people are not going to make it to the end but yeah it's you know it's a very tough scene it's a very sad scene but also I would probably add that it's kind of, in a strange way, celebratory of the character of the log lady as well, because she is still somebody who is an important figure in Twin Peaks, whether she's alive or not. I think it's sad that she's gone, but she almost lives on in the in the way that other people remember her, I think, which is an important aspect and actually one that parallels the arc of Laura as well a character who is just as powerful in death as she is in life um I think yeah and they even go so far as to dedicate the episode 
to the memory of the character. Yeah, yeah. As if she had somehow moved beyond fiction into the world. Yeah, I think she's, you know, I think she's a remarkable creation in the universe. And I think it's a very fitting way to uh, to mark her role in in uh, The Return. It also makes me wonder if that really was the last bit that they shot to have ended it like that. But yes, yeah, stepping back outside of what we're seeing. So, ha- you know, how do you think this fits with the timeline of events that we've seen so far in the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station? So we see, obviously, the phone call between Hawk and Margaret. And then it's then followed by the scene where Hawk announces to everyone that uh, Margaret has died. Now, do you think that those things happened sequentially? Or do you think that there's actually a time jump here? I'm not sure, because Hawk is certain that she's passed away. If he's just had the phone call with her, you wouldn't know that for certain. Um, You might feel that it was probably the case. But would you be certain enough to tell other people? Mm -hmm. It's odd, I think, is this kind of... Yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird way to juxtapose these scenes. But maybe, I mean, on one hand, you would suspect that maybe he knows that this is Margaret passing for real because she is declaring it as such and he trusts her in that way. Another side of it, which, you know, which I suppose it's it's also worth thinking about is, you know, is the scene of Margaret's, or is the scene of his announcing Margaret has died something that happens later in the storyline um so are there things that we are there things that happen between the phone call and that scene um for example other things that are happening in twin peaks alternatively maybe you know that scene from part two when hawk goes into the woods um and finds potentially the entrance to the black lodge when he sees the red curtains is that scene something that's happening in between here as well have they just put these scenes together because they thematically fit but actually the scenes are actually separated by a you know a time jump which is not related on screen in uh, in this episode yeah because that walk in the woods where he sees the curtain still feels out of place yeah um so i'm not sure that there's there's nothing connecting these scenes with any other specific events at the moment yeah um but maybe we'll see more next time yeah and certainly in that scene with hawk in the woods he does say something is meant to be happening tonight which is unconnected to anything that's been said so far so why he's going there still remains a bit of a mystery Uh, it could be something that's left unresolved now and maybe this is the end of the arc involving the log lady but i have a feeling that that scene may happen in between these two parts Uh, but we've just already seen it and it won't necessarily be shown as a flashback but we may see him go maybe the following day at 2.53, as it were, um, to see what's going to happen the following night after they've just been to Jack Rabbit's Palace. And now back with Audrey and Charlie again. And they're still at home and they still haven't gone to the roadhouse. Um, They're waiting by the door. Charlie's got his coat on. Audrey, everything she does, she seems to be stalling, actually making the decision to go out. 
and he's clearly very frustrated with it she's clearly very frustrated with him and it's I still don't know what to make of this as to what's going on between them yeah the dialogue is all very stilted it's un it's unclear like how they're actually interacting with each other it's not a natural relationship or natural conversation and they are kind of going in circles all the time but it's almost like he's almost like a um a mirror that she's looking into she's having a conversation with herself she can't convince herself to leave and she seems trapped but this whole thing seems to be driven by her when she wants to go she triggers him to want to leave Hmm. then when she's uncertain about it he doesn't force the issue you know she is you know urging things to happen but it goes based on what she wants to do which implies that he is almost behaving as a uh, a projection of her in some way Hmm. uh, in a strange kind of way but it's odd because we now get a situation where he's starting i mean he seems very passive but he's starting to lose it a little bit with her. Mm. I think there's an element of frustration, but also it's odd. Has As she gets angry, he gets angry, and it kind of escalates in a weird kind of way. Um, and strange things are being said where they're declaring very confidently, I am this character, I am not that character. Almost, almost like she is running through this in her head in some way. And even when she says, you know, who are you? Again, that's a phrase which has a lot of meaning in the world of Twin Peaks because what Laura says is what Diane said when they're interacting with a slightly lodgy kind of character. Yeah. Um, which does make you wonder what is really going on here. Um, but the scene, I mean, it's, it's very uncomfortable because it's unclear what, where this is taking place, when, what state of mind any of the characters are in and whether this is all just a figment of her subconscious while she's in a um you know maybe she's in a coma maybe she's unable to process events in some kind of weird catatonic state where she she can't engage with the reality of what's going on but it is well what well in terms of the positioning of these scenes in the different parts it's very strange again that this is shown just before the roadhouse scene at the end yeah um the roadhouse scenes are starting to reveal events that feature characters that she is speaking about with charlie and it's odd that they're always near the end yeah um but i don't really understand what that means either um there's something there's something funny about it but it doesn't really make much sense yeah and then right at the end she suddenly kind of loses it and attacks him when he decides that he isn't going to go out after all and it's the first time that we've really seen any of these scenes between them get that aggressive yeah. They've been shouting at each other before now, but not like this. Yeah, but I wonder if this physical altercation might also trigger some reveal that's about to happen. Um, it seems like many of the events are about to have some big, pivotal moment. And I think they're all going to be synchronised in a certain way, and I think those things are going to happen in part 16. But there's there's something about this whole business with Audrey... That is giving me a bit of a Harold Smith vibe in the way that she won't leave the house. Because if you think back to Harold Smith, he he would never leave his house. And we don't know how long he had been that way. But there have been a lot of theories afterwards about, you know, did did he have... Was he tuned in in some way to the 
fact that there were Black Lodge influences around him. We know that the Tremonds mm. were living next door to him. Mm. Um, was his fear of leaving the house something to do with wanting to shut himself away from all of that rather than just um, agoraphobia? Mm. We don't really know. But the, the way that Audrey keeps avoiding going out the front door. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, we know that she's had brushes with the Black Lodge before. Mm. Uh, obviously, we don't know what happened with, with Mr. C after he came back. But I don't know. It it just made me think of it this time. The, mm. way, the way she she kept avoiding... You know, Charlie was ready to go out the front door and she kept changing the subject and avoiding going. But then, in the case of Harold Smith, that was very clearly happening in the real world. Yeah. So how do you think that relates to what you're seeing with Audrey? I don't know, because the other thing about Harold is that he lived vicariously through stories. Mm. And, you know, he, he kept all those books where he would write down... He was writing down Donna's story. He had Laura's diary. That was how he experienced the world. And there was something, although there's something not quite real about the situation with Charlie, the fact that Charlie was, said something in a previous part of like, do I have to end your story as well? Mm. Or something like that. Yeah. There's, I still think that it's not entirely real. Um, the house doesn't feel real. It doesn't mm. feel like a modern house anyway. Um, I suspect that we might only get more information on what's really going on with Audrey if Richard tells Mr. C something yeah. that suddenly sheds some light on it. If he suddenly says, oh, by the way, my mum's still in a coma, it's all going to make sense in the end. I wonder if that's how it's going to be revealed rather than us aptly ever seeing Audrey out of the mm. house. And I, I, and I suppose at that point we may actually not really properly return to Audrey scenes then you know once the uh, once the reveal is made it may not be critical if that's what they what intended to do with her arc yeah and then finally to the roadhouse for the second time tonight uh, and this week in the booth of mystery is Ruby who is rudely ejected by a couple of random biker jacket-wearing dudes and uh, dumped unceremoniously on the floor while the veils are playing. Yeah, it's a very, very strange scene. She kind of is on the floor, very quiet. She only speaks to say she's waiting for somebody. We don't know who that's for. Maybe it's her uncle. I don't know. <laughs> um, and then as the music builds, like this thumping music in the background, she starts crawling forward through the crowd in a scene which is actually quite reminiscent i think of dougie when he's crawling towards the electrical socket yeah as well and then she just starts screaming and it's not the scream of you know a response to something in particular this is the it almost seems like the scream of frustration and anger which has been bubbling up inside her and i Again, for the end of the episode, it could be indicative of the, you know, the anger and, you know, the suffering and, you know, and the treatment of people, but especially women in Twin Peaks, escalating so rapidly in uh, 
in the town to the point where it's just bubbled up inside her almost. She seems to be like the focal point for all this anger and she's venting it and it's odd also that no one responds to it as well. Mm. She's screaming but no one can hear over the noise of everything which I think is quite important. Yeah and and also there's a a kind of strobe effect on the lighting of the band on stage and then as she's screaming you also get like a kind of strobing flickering on the screen and that's never a good sign in Twin Peaks when lights go like that. And certainly, yeah, so certainly the the responses to actions um, of people is something to be taken very seriously. So already in the episode, we've seen the skipping of the uh, ZZ Top music yeah. when Freddie punches people. And this is like somebody whose energy transfers into some kind of um, electrical disturbance almost. So I think that we may never see her again, but she is marking... Um, something very important i mean it's a scream it's the kind of scream that laura palmer would would give out um like the one where he the one where he screams in the train car it's very similar to that Mm. but it's just very very strange it's almost like she's channeling the anger the fear the pain and suffering in that town in that one moment and it kind of fits with the the escalation of emotion during the episode and how everything is reaching sort of a critical point um, but yeah, as the credits roll, we just see a shot of the motel that we saw earlier on where Philip Jeffries now appears to live. And in the very, very final shot, as the actual words leave the screen, it cuts to another shot. And there we see the woman who came to open the door, mm. um, just standing very spookily in the background and, uh, it's odd. I mean, her words are, what, I will unlock the door for you, but said mm. backwards. And I wonder if that is somehow a harbinger for what's going to happen in part 16. Yeah, because we also earlier did have Gersten wearing a key on a necklace, didn't we? Yeah. And we know that part 16 is no knock, no doorbell. Yeah. So that's it for our recap of part 15 of twin peaks the return thank you for listening again closing thoughts i've got an awful lot to do in three hours there's an awful lot to do yeah there's so much which is left open-ended at this point Mm. you know we have well i mean you know i think we're not going to list all the you know all the different questions we've done that so many times but um we have this issue now of everyone heading to twin peaks yeah. Everyone has coordinates. Everyone's going there. <laughs> um, we have the problem of Dougie Coop and the state that he's in. He appears to have regained a sense of who he might be yeah. in terms of being original Coop, but we are unclear how that's going to pan out. Um, we have the strange mystery of the fact that all of a sudden Judy is going to be an important figure, potentially, in the last three hours. Yeah, But in one capacity, we don't really know. I mean, we mentioned it earlier on in the episode, but I'm really intrigued about the fact that there are links to the Buenos Aires stuff that have not been dealt with yet. Yeah. Um, so we spoke about the fact that there's a reference to a senorita in The Missing Pieces in reference to Judy, but also we have those scenes in Buenos Aires where the phone calls are being redirected. Yeah. So although Philip Jeffries or the David Bowie iteration 
has now been turned into a steaming teapot <laughs> or a tin machine, which yeah. is which is probably the most uh, unsuccessful of David Bowie's many iterations back in the eighties, um, but potentially a very a very successful iteration now. Um, there's still somebody going around pretending to be Philip Jeffries, yeah. um, probably the same person who was on the phone mm-hmm. in the end of part two to Mister C. The person who's told Ray to kill Mr. C. Yeah. Um, and there's... So, yeah. So we have the character of Philip Jeffries still exists in the form of a teapot above the convenience store. But we have somebody using his identity for some reason. Now, that's important, I think, because the only people who might be interested in using that identity uh, is probably somebody in the FBI. Mm. Um, the only ones who would know. So... You know, is it Cole, is it Albert, or is it Diane? I don't think it's Tammy. Um, but there's something that I think is going to come out of that. Certainly Albert claims he was in communication with Philip Jeffries. So was he in communication with the real Philip Jeffries or the imposter? Now, I think it's probably the imposter. Mm. So maybe a lot of people are being played by this person who is claiming to be Philip Jeffries, and they don't realise it yet. Even Diane, she could be thinking that she's working for the real Philip Jeffries or somebody on the side of good and then doing things um, that seem like they're working against the FBI, but maybe they're in a roundabout way, something that she thinks she's doing to help Cooper. Um, yeah, because one, one thing we do see this episode is Mr. C sending the Las Vegas text yeah. to Diane. Um, but So we've still got to resolve what the actual relationship is there and whether she is getting them from him or bypassed from someone else. Yeah, but this message was a lowercase one from Mr. C sent and received in the same format, I think, with respect to Diane. Now, that didn't happen with the text about the dinner table. Mm. That changed the case and also the punctuation as well. So something happened maybe with that message, but not with this one. And it's notable that they made a point of having the message very different in one case and very similar in this case. So maybe somebody latched on to the interaction between... Diane and Mr. C at some point. Yeah. The only person who might be doing that is Albert, simply because he's the one who's been intercepting these messages and uh, leaking them to Gordon Cole as well. Yeah. Yeah, and just as we know that all these characters are converging on Twin Peaks, it's clear that there are movements happening in the town itself because for some reason all these people appear to be having experiences involving the fireman who appears to have instructed them in certain ways, given them information, or potentially now put them in specific locations that might become relevant later on. So how that plays out, I don't know, but I can see that being uh, important in some way. Yeah, so... Thank you for sticking with us for another very, very long episode. We're sorry that we kind of waffle on for so long. But yeah, that's the end of the first 15 hours. There's there's one more hour left and then there's the two hour finale. So, I mean, yeah, there, there's a lot to get through. And it's unclear if they're actually going to deal with it immediately in part 16 or it's going to be dragged out. I get a sense that we are going to start seeing a lot of movement now to start getting things wrapped up even though things might be left dangling at the end um, I can almost see a lot being wrapped up at the end of hour 16 just to create a crazy two hour finale like yeah. season two style you know a completely off the wall 
um, change in tone. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it could be that the entire two-hour finale is just in Twin Peaks and the Black Lodge. Yeah. Or potentially some of the White Lodge as well. Yeah. So I can see everyone finally converging there by the end of hour 16. Yeah. And we certainly have to see, I think, a little bit more of the whole... Well, so, so obviously we have the, the Sarah Palmer side of things, which needs to be dealt with. But actually, we have to know what Laura is doing in all of this. That has not been made explicitly clear, but I feel that it will be because it is so fundamental to what is going on. Now, I think we are going to see a few scenes from the trailers that we haven't seen yet. Mm. Um, so obviously, we were talking earlier about the fact that we see Coop being led by somebody down a corridor in the dark and i think that's going to be a similar corridor to the one we've seen above the convenience store in this part we've also seen him driving and we've also seen him looking around in some way yeah. and there was somebody next to him at the time so it's unclear how this stuff is fitting in but it tells us that there will be scenes of a conscious dougie coop again mm. but whether it's dougie coop or dale cooper i not completely sure but i suspect it's the latter but it may not be until the very final moments um it could really be right at the very end that you know the return of cooper is is what this whole thing has been about but we still have so much to do involving bob and who wants who wants mr c Hmm. and what's inside him um there is this mystery of uh the mother and the one underneath the moon on blue pine mountain that that, like and that's all you know that's that's how this whole thing started in many respects you know um mr c wanting to find what was on his playing card Mm. um that image has come up hawk we know knows what it is or is aware of it but he doesn't want to talk about it we still have what's going to happen on the second day yeah um for the jack rabbit's palace crew so there are many things that are yet to be resolved here three hours to do it and um yeah i think it's gonna be a pretty crazy few hours so next week probably 45 minutes of candy waving a remote control around (laughs) (laughs) in a shock twist (laughs) yeah i mean they don't they they're they're throwing curveballs at us all the time actually and you know although we can guess what might be the things that should be being covered it doesn't mean that that's what's actually going to be the content of the uh, upcoming hours but one i think prediction that i would make i'd love to see happen but i know it won't would be at the end of everything for there to be a sequence where gordon cole retires from the fbi having solved the big mystery of coop and then he decides to move to twin peaks and stay in the uh, fat trout trailer park and gets a trailer right next to Cyril Pons. <laughs> and then it's just like Lynch and Frost just together, like in our memories for the rest of it. So yeah, um, thanks again for listening. Please follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, visit our website, give us a review on iTunes. And yeah, let us know what you think about our 15 of Twin Peaks. And yeah, tweet us, get in touch. We love to hear from you. And we're going to put up a revised version of our timeline, hopefully this weekend. So let us know what you think about that as well. Yes. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. We'll see you for part 16 of Twin Peaks The Return. Goodbye. Goodbye.